I believe firmly that this world has too much E and not enough E. Mm. Too much entitlement, not enough empathy. Yeah. So I want my stories to engender empathy, which is why I don't care if you don't remember that I'm the one that told you. I want you to take away the feeling. And take the essence of what's being said. And yeah. do something more with it. Yeah. This is Reignited, where together we will meet interesting people who have a curious message for the world. They'll tell us about their experiences so that we can all reignite our lives. I'm super excited to have a curious conversation with Sean Fuster, who is the chief court reporter for The Advertiser here in Adelaide. He has a very interesting outlook on life and I can't wait to chat with him about all of the things that have happened both in his work and in his life. So welcome, Sean. Thanks Thank very you. much for having me, Bill. That's all right. So we usually get people to choose some symbols to mm. introduce yourself. So yeah. what did you choose and why? All right. Let's look in the tarot arcana of Sean Fuster-ness. <laughs> uh, probably won't surprise anybody to see that I picked some scales. What do they represent for you? Balance. Balance in all things. And I picked a pair of boxing gloves because I think we should always have a fighting chance. We're not necessarily going to win. We're not necessarily doomed to lose, but all we should ever ask for is a fighting chance. Yeah. And does that relate to life or your work and what you see? Or? Pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, no matter what you do in life, you should always have a fighting chance. You should always have the opportunity to prove yourself regardless of what the odds are against you. And if those odds won't let you, then look for some allies that will help you move past that. Yeah. And then finally, the pen, which of course is what I do all my best work with, allegedly. But writing has always been my thing. It's always been my primary form of expression. So talking like this is not usually my way. But yeah, so the pen has always been very, very important to me as well. So they'd probably be from the pack, the three that I would pick. Yeah, so the scales with the balance, everyone deserves a fighting chance, and the pen, which is your craft. Very much so. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. So why journalism? Because Marvel Comics wouldn't hire me as a 12-year-old to write Spider-Man. Okay. <laughs> that, that's the flippant answer. The, the truthful answer is my father was a police officer uh, in our small town and my uncle was the local bikey club president. Okay. Which so was, how did that work? Fairly, family dinners were interesting. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, the uncle was on mum's side. So there was that slight bit of uh, distance. But it meant that I grew up always hearing both sides of the story. And I learned very early on through the exposure to the people that each of them knew that a badge doesn't guarantee you're a good person and a patch doesn't doom you to being a bad person. Okay. So that informed a lot of my early outlook and being prepared to look past people's surface affect, find out who they were. Also, the area I grew up in was fairly low socioeconomic. Being the son of a cop and the son of a teacher, we were better off than most people yeah. in our area. So I got used to seeing brothers, sisters, uncles go to prison, come out of prison, go back into prison. I got used to seeing people moving in with you know, relatives because they couldn't afford things. At Christmas time, if I got a Nintendo, the street got a Nintendo. And I didn't really understand as a youngster why that was happening. But I look back and realize now that it was our way of giving back to the people that were around us and just giving a bit of a helping hand. So... I was exposed unknowingly to a lot of uh, social consciousness and social justice issues just through my upbringing. So how do you think that's informed your outlook and what you do now? I think it's informed everything in my outlook and it's only been in the last 
10 to 15 years that I've really been able to put words to that. Because it's only been the last 10, 15 years that as a, a race of people, we've started grappling with questions like privilege mm. and understanding of things like never punch down, only punch up and all the great terminology that's come into this space. So it means that, oh, and even the you know unhelpful things like, oh, woke and social justice warrior. Yep. Mm-hmm. Guilty as charged of both. Yeah. It means that I grew up just thinking this is the way things should be. If you can help, you do help. Yeah. If you have a platform, you offer a platform. That's just simply the way of things. And I didn't realise it was part of a, a bigger conversation that humans needed to have. Yeah. So were you always interested in the court reporting specifically or what was the, the road to this this place? The court reporting came out of reading the newspaper and reading the stories and saying that's what I want to write about. Writing was always my primary form of expression, as we said. And when I realised quite seriously that I wasn't going to be able to just walk into a job writing comic books for a living, it's like, well, what can I do that is similar? What's got heroes, villains, good guys, bad guys, interesting stuff? And the courts were really interesting. And then marrying that with my experiences with the people around me, it's like, well, this is where the real stories are happening. This is where the actual cut and thrust of life is going on. This is where people's lives are being determined, their freedoms, their liberties. So I want to be the court reporter for the advertiser because I saw the byline that said court reporter. Mm. Then I saw another byline that said chief court reporter. I thought, oh, I want that one. (laughs) So from the age of maybe 12 or so, that was the goal to be the chief court reporter at the advertiser without really understanding what that meant. And what was driving that. And what was driving that. So I pursued that. And then uh, university was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I was fortunate enough to apply for the cadetship at the Advertiser at the end of 99, got in at the start of 2020, and have been there ever since. Wow. Yeah. So you talk about the heroes, the villains, everything that happens in a courtroom is there. Mm. Does it still excite you? Like, is there something about it or is it a curiosity? Like, what plays out when you're sitting in court and watching proceedings? It's not an excitement. Um, I don't truck with what I call the true crime mentality Mm. and no offense to anybody out there that does enjoy that sort of thing but it's never been my speed what keeps me going in my job now is very much the ability to give a voice to people whose voices have been taken away I had some fairly formative experiences as a young person where my voice was taken from me where I was not literally literally not allowed to speak I was Mm. told sit down shut up don't say what you think And I railed against that on a very primal level. I hate seeing people censored. I hate seeing people silenced. And so I feel that happens too much in our courts, particularly with victims of crime. They have only a very small window to tell their stories. Mm. It's all about the evidence. It's all about the offender. It's all about the system. But it's seldom about the people who have actually been truly affected by this. I'm a straight white guy with a large platform. If I can give that platform to people that don't normally get their voices heard. That's what I want to do and that's what excites me. Yeah, I love that whole concept of voice and I quite often with my clients will be talking about that, finding your voice. What does that mean? What needs to be spoken? Yeah. What needs to come out? Because we suppress so much. We do. Um, and people suppress it on us as well. Especially yeah, for victims us. of crime. It's been suppressed for them twice. Yeah. Once by the trauma of the incident and yeah. once by the re-victimisation of the system mm. because the yeah. system grinds. I was speaking with some people today who their son was killed and their son's killer was found not guilty by reason of mental incompetence, which means that they never get to give a victim impact statement. Mm. They never get to talk about how they feel. 
They don't have a say in the sentencing process because the mental health system takes over, as it rightly should, yeah. and makes sure that the person who committed this act is cared for, looked after, counselled and rehabilitated. Mm. But when that person then in turn says, it's time for me to come out of rehabilitation because I'm ready, and everyone signs off on that rubber stamps and just says, yep, of course you're ready, there's still this mother and father who lost a son mm. who don't get to say what they wanted to. Yeah. They were rendered so voiceless that they actually hired a lawyer to come and represent them in court to read out a statement on their behalf. So I've taken that statement and I've reported it mm. and spoken to them and just the, the elation in their voices knowing that they're actually going to be heard, not necessarily listened to because nobody can guarantee you listen to, mm. but just that their voices are actually going to be out there in a way they haven't been at any point in this six-year ordeal. That's the moment I live for, not yeah. because it makes me feel good or because they say thank you very much, Sean, but because I know that just even for 20 minutes they're going to feel a bit easier because, okay, I got to say what I wanted. Yeah, I've got tingles happening when you're saying that because the importance of being able to have your voice heard or like actually say something is so, so powerful and it actually can help with the healing. Absolutely. Um, you know, trauma you know, there's a, it's a long road back and nothing will ever be the same, but being able to have your voice is really, really important. And I think that's where those three cards come in for me because the system has to do its job, mm. but that has to be balanced with the rights of everybody involved in it. Yeah. People have to fight for their right to be heard, unfortunately, and that means that sometimes I can lean in and land a few blows as well. And the way I do that is with the pen. So I guess mm. that's why those three images really spoke to me because it kind of is a a neat visual summation of how I see my role mm. so and my how, purpose. How do you bring the human side in when there's also, I guess you're reporting on facts mm. of what's happened in, in the courtroom? Like, How do you balance all that out? It's, it's a complicated answer. So the way I like to explain it to students when they ask me is imagine a crossroads and at the centre of this crossroads, and I'm stealing this from a very famous movie, at the centre of this crossroads there's a $100 bill and at the, each end of the crossroads there's a truck driver, an unbiased journalist, Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. Which of the four gets the $100 note? It's the truck driver because the other three are figments of your imagination. <laughs> There's no such thing as an unbiased journalist. There yep. are only journalists who can put their bias aside long enough to tell the story. Yep. Some of us do it well, some of us don't do it well at all, and some of us don't even try. Yeah. You know? Which category do you fit into? I try very hard. Yep. I try very hard, but especially in this space, it's really difficult. What I tell myself is that journalism is tertiary to the court process. Mm -hmm. And so I can only come in with the emotion once the forensic evidence has been dealt with. So yeah. while a trial's on, I have to strip emotion out of my reporting, no matter how I feel about it. Yeah. Once a verdict is decided upon and an offender, if an offender is found guilty, that's when the emotion can come in because there's no more chance of manipulating the process or accidentally affecting the process. Yeah, because things can be thrown out if things are reported on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, an apprehension of bias is just as bad as bias itself. So you've got to make sure you don't do that. But when you are forging a relationship with these victims and their families, explaining that to them, doing the right thing by them, keeping them buoyed while you're also trying to keep yourself buoyed, while you're also trying to strip everything out of that so that you can tell the story in a way that the reader can make up their own minds, it's very difficult. The the key factor for me in all of it is to remember that no matter how I feel, it's not my pain. It's someone else's pain. Mm -hmm. The moment I pour my own emotion into it, my own spin on it, I'm lessening their voice. Yeah. And then those scales are unbalanced again. Yeah. 
So by keeping a, a non-biased view, you're actually helping in the long run. Well, not non-biased, but by removing my bias. Removing it's an active bias. Yeah. It's an active thing. It's every sentence, every typed letter, every conversation, remove that bias, remove yeah. that bias. Mm. And is that a conscious thing that you do? Or yeah. it's just so instinctual now? No, no, it's, it's definitely conscious. It, it's yeah. conscious every day because we are all biased. Oh, massively. Even if it doesn't come out of our mouths, mm. we are all biased about something. Yeah. And we have to, well, sorry, I feel that within journalism, we have to, constantly work against that otherwise we're not doing our jobs properly yeah and so what do you like how do you balance that like how do you hold it with your sense of social justice sitting there at the same time have other people to talk to about it yeah um so my own therapist my family my friends mm. start a podcast yeah uh, <laughs> that sort of thing so having having another outlet for it where it doesn't infect the justice process for yep. starters, mm. and where it doesn't affect infect the day to day journalism. Yeah, because there's reporting and there's journalism. You know, okay. reporting. What's the reporting is what happened today. Blah blah blah. Mm. Who, what, why, where, when. Journalism is analysis. What yeah. does it actually mean? What does it say to a broader social conscience? What does it say to a bigger a group of people? Yeah, that's the part that it's not so much that bias infects it. It's where your bias can then allow you to talk about it in a different way. Hunter S. Thompson used to call it the journalism of attachment. Yeah. Making sure you're attached to something and writing about it because you're attached. That can be done, but it shouldn't be done to the detriment of ordinary unbiased reporting and especially the justice system. Yeah. There's a lot there, isn't there? And yeah, I, I've never really thought about like, as, like a journalist needs to know, well, you need to know the law as well and what you can report on and that, but there's so much happening all at once. Yeah, um, and you, just you're to get that story, and you're yeah. sifting it constantly. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's always going on, and it, it's not just a matter of oh, this sounded terrible. Now I'll write it down. Unfortunately, I think for my industry, too many people do think it's that, mm. and mistakes are made, problems are caused, and ultimately we do a deleterious effect to journalism itself. Mm. Yeah, it's a rod we're making for our own back as an industry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, something to consider. So. You talked about um, talking to other people about some of the things that are happening and how do you manage the content? Like, so we met at an event where we were talking about wellbeing, yes. particularly for journalists, and it got me really thinking about, as a therapist, we have counselling um, to make sure that we're going okay for our clients and debriefing and doing all those things. And when I think about what you witness every day, I mean, some days it's probably a lot lighter than other days. Not often. Not often. Yeah. <laughs> Not often. Yeah. But I think about the intricate detail that is talked, like, tra like it's trauma completely. Mm. How do you hold that and sit with that and what impact does that have? So there's several layers to my finely developed response to this. Yeah. And I say that by echoing the words of my psychologist who said, you have a finely developed response to this. <laughs> so on the first level, there's the detachment of, I'm sitting in a wood panelled room with a bunch of people with horse hair on their heads mm. talking about stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not at the crime scene. So it's, that's the first level of detachment. I'm yeah. listening to a story that's being told. The second level of detachment is, it didn't happen to me. Yeah. And the moment I let that affect me, I'm losing my ability to tell the story properly for the deceased, for the offender, mm. for the alleged offender. Let's say they're found not guilty, the accused, for everybody involved in that process. The moment mm. that I allow my pain, my angst, my upset, my disgust, whatever, to override, 
I'm not doing my job anymore. Mm. So that's a, that's a bulwark as well. Yeah. Do the job. On top of that, there's the fact that court sits from nine in the morning to five in the afternoon and it doesn't sit on weekends. Yeah. So there's time. It's always time to go, I feel really terrible right now. Put it to one side, write the story, speak to the victim, speak to the prosecutor, speak to the offender, whatever. You've got time tonight to process that. Yeah. Dame Roma Mitchell, who was a very famous judge and later a governor of South Australia, used to say, you let the bathtub fill up. Yeah. You let the plug out, and then at the end of the night, you scrub the soap ring. Very much my approach. Yeah. Sometimes the bathtub overflows. That's when you've got a problem. But 99% of the time, you're just dealing with that. So those are sort of the key factors for me is make sure I'm doing the job for the sake of those people who need it done. Make sure I'm doing the job the best way possible for those who are paying me and therefore ethically and morally. And make sure as a result that I am not putting myself too far into it. Mm. The other thing that really helps with covering courts is that it's a story. It's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Even if you don't like the end, it still has an ending. There's a denouement. There's a conclusion. Yep. You live with something. The longest trial I've lived with was 11 months. Yep. But at the end of that 11 months, we got an outcome. Mm. So you can process. Courts have closure built in for those who are not part of the process. Okay. I'd never mm. speak for a victim because their closure is their own business and doesn't often come. But for the observer sitting to one side for that tertiary role of a journalist, mm. I get closure. It's over. It's done. Now what do I need to do to put that away and deal with it? Yeah. Yeah. It actually reminds me a little bit of the therapeutic process because we're listening to people's stories constantly, but it's not our story, but we're there to hold the story yeah. um, at the same time. Has there ever been times where it's stuck, like you're in the bath and can't get out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There was a case that I don't talk about by name anymore because it's too triggering to me, but yep. there was a case that actually landed me in a psychologist's office for the yep. very first time. I was at that point 15, 16 years in. So I'd done very well to get that far without mm. anything truly coming in and knocking me around. Yep. But that shattered me. And left me at a point where I literally needed to psychologically rebuild myself. Yeah. And I did. You well know, done. Thank you. You know, it's it's like a one of those Japanese teacups with the gold filling. Uh, it's still not, doesn't quite sit right on the counter anymore and it rattles a little bit, but it's better than it was. Yeah. And some days it still chips. You deal with that as you go along. Can you pick when it's chipping now? Most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time. I, I have an expression, yelling at bread. When I get to the point that I'm so temperamental that the lack of bread at the store makes me want to yell, <laughs> I know I've reached the point that something's gone wrong. It's never about the bread. <laughs> well, no, and that's actually happened to me. That was yeah. the first time I realized I was yelling at bread was when I yelled at bread. Yeah. And everyone in the store turned to me and was very kind and checked on me and said, are you all right? I'm like, no, I'm really not. I, yeah. Excuse me, I need to go make a call. Yeah, But that's a good lesson to us all too because I quite often in my workshops will say, how are you and how do you know? Like there's indicators that you're not doing yeah. okay and we can ignore them until, yeah, there's no bread and we've lost it. But it's actually about the 500 things that have led to that. Exactly. Yeah. And I can see it now coming. I can get yeah. to a point where I'm like, so we're almost out of bread. You know, people talk about spoons and things like that. Mm. And I'm like, we're almost out of bread. And my wife and my family will go, okay, we know what's coming next. Yeah, cool. we've got some language around that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and maybe we and that sort of that. thing helps. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, you come to find a way to deal and you rely on people for that, but you also have to, it has to be self-determinative too, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. You have to actually turn around and say, you can give me all the lessons in the world. 
you can give me all the support in the world. But if I'm not actioning that, mm. if I'm not making that a part of my day-to-day toolkit for dealing with life, yeah, then I'm not actually going to heal. Yeah. So what are some of those daily tools? Like what, what's shifted since, since that time? When you end up in the psychologist's office, which yeah. I think is a great thing, actually. No, so do yeah. I. That, that, you know, I mean, that's the number one thing that's yeah. helped because it needed to happen. And yeah. just, it, I actually owe Jane Riley from 5AA and TV mm. thanks for that because we were talking about this particular case during my radio spot mm. and she was the first person to ever say to me, Sean, how do you cope with everything you hear? And something inside me just went, oh, oh dear, we've never stopped and thought about that before, have we? And oh. someone just totally acknowledging it. Yeah. Yeah. And it had never been acknowledged before. Yeah. And as you and I have discussed, you know, at that point in journalism, it wasn't acknowledged within newspaper companies. It wasn't acknowledged within workplace health and safety. Mm. There was just a very much a have a coffee and a cigarette and get the hell over it sort of mentality. Yeah. I had to take my own mental health in my own hands because the assistance wasn't there in that era of newspapers. We just didn't talk about it. We just didn't talk Any about of it. it. Nobody yeah. did. The, the, the closest there was was, you know, we can set you up with a counsellor. Mm. Cool. I'll go speak to the counsellor. The counsellor listens for five minutes and raises their hands and says, I'm not qualified to deal with this. You need a psychologist. Mm. I'm aware of that, but they've sent me to you. Mm. And then, of course, it's, oh, well, we, we're not equipped to pay for that, deal with that, do anything for that. Okay. I'll have to do it myself. Yeah. I'm glad I did because it gave me a level of control over it. it mm. I could pick who I wanted to see, how often I wanted to see them. It cost me an arm and a leg, but it's worth it. Mm. And that was the first way of dealing with it, almost having that ability to ascend past the occupational health and safety, workplace health and safety Mm. structure and take control of my own healing. So that was the first way of dealing with it, knowing that I have someone on call that I can reach out to who is going to give me the expertise, the Mm. the high-level version of what's going on. Change in friendships was a big part of it. Yeah, but... What happened there? I had people come into my life who were exceptionally good Mm. and the truest sorts of definition of friends that you're supposed to have. Bit of a reminder of, uh, you know, what I did have previously and Mm. that it wasn't that. But, you know, people like Daniel Panozzo, who I Mm. do Just Lawful with, people like Pontip Santavong. My oldest friend, Troy, who I've known since I was three, Mm. Troy Harvey. Uh, coming back into my life at that period, moving back to Adelaide, just mm. happened to coexist at the right moment. And that led to having much better supports around me. Mm. And so you weren't doing it alone? Like you could actually talk freely about what was happening? I could. Or, yeah. I could. Daniel, of course, in his non-just lawful life is a change management consultant yeah. <laughs> and very big on emotional intelligence and things like that. So he was like, well, I can help you with this if you want me to. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yes, I do want you to. But also it's about, yeah, you wanting to do that as well and coming to the party with it. Yeah, I I wanted to learn because there was a a level of morbid fascination of I've been all right for so long. Mm. What was it about this one that uprooted me so badly? Yeah. And as with all of these things, it wasn't just the case. It was the case. It was the the memories that it triggers from my own life. It was traumatic experiences from my past that it Mm. relates to, echoes of this, reflections of that, unresolved anger toward this person. But also, guilt about that person. You've already had 16 years in court. Yeah. Like there's a, like I, you think about the bath. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think of, I talk about vicarious trauma as like there's just a little bit of oil on you and then yep. eventually it becomes really thick and it just, you like all of a sudden you've got all this stuff on you that you didn't realise you had. Considering yeah. I've once had to clean out a deep fryer, I like that 
option a lot because it's just that feeling of yeah. the sludge and the breadcrumbs and everything that's caught yeah. in the bottom of a deep fry. Yeah. Just then all of a sudden there's just, you know, there's an event or something that happens that is the the one that that does you, you know, tips you over. And yeah. I, I'd been saying to young journalists for years, there's always going to be one. The fact that I hadn't had mine ever was actually, <laughs> it was actually both pretty good and pretty unexpected. I mm. thought I'd had mine before I started in courts. I covered a case many years ago where a little girl died in front of me. Yeah. And I thought, okay, that's my one. That's the one that's always going to carry with me, stay with me, upset me. Mm. I'll learn to deal with that. Again, newspapers didn't do things like that at the time. There was no hand-holding. There was no help. There was, maybe you shouldn't be doing police jobs at the moment. Thanks. I will definitely take you up yeah. on that. But that was as far as it went because yeah. that's all anybody understood. And it's sort of that thing of just get the story and on with the job sort yeah. of thing. Well, I even think about you know the anniversary of um, 9-11. Mm. People were reporting on that as it happened. Like that I was. literally traumatised in the event as well and trying to get a message across. So what was that like? Well, we had a situation where, of course, we're all at work here in the Tizer in Adelaide and News Corp did a massive phone magic thing, which meant that your phone would ring and it would be someone from New York and you would just take copy. Didn't matter who it was, mm. that they had no way of getting back to their desks. So if your phone rang and it was somebody from New York, just started taking copy. Mm. And I had a reporter who was huddled in the doorway of a bakery four blocks down from the WTC. Mm. He'd been grabbed by the baker and pulled inside so that he avoided the concrete cloud. And he's just describing to me everything that's going on and I'm just wow. typing. So to this day, I have memories of being in New York on 9-11. Mm. I was nowhere near New York and yeah. I still haven't been to New York in my mm. life. Yeah. But I remember it from his descriptions. Mm. And <laughs> I tell the story that until the 10th anniversary of the WTC, I never saw the piece of footage of the first plane hitting. Yeah. I only ever saw the second plane hit because every time they played the footage of the first plane, I was head down working. Mm. I missed it. Yeah, so it's we don't even think about that. Like it's instant, you know, and that trauma and reporting on that and you know, as it unfolds is incredible work. Mm. Well, my greatest fear as I've said to many people is that one day I'll get dementia and all I'll remember are the cases. Okay. And you know, people are under strict instructions that, uh, thank goodness for voluntary euthanasia in this state now, mm -hmm. people are under strict instructions if that happens because that is not a way to live. Mm. Yeah. But that is a genuine fear that everything is still up there and yep. it's going to come up in a way that I'm not capable or qualified to deal with. Yeah. And I guess that's when you reach out again and again and again. Exactly. Yeah. And if I'm demented, it's a little different situation. Yeah. So. yeah. How do you manage... You know, like we've talked about some of the supports around you and things that you've done. Mm. I'm assuming, and I probably shouldn't assume, that you would meet some very threatening people that you're reporting on who who have done, you know, things that are not necessarily what society wants to happen. Mm. How do you, like, do you have to put things in place to sort of protect yourself? Yeah, Like, absolutely. what are some of those things that we wouldn't even think about that as a court reporter you know, you're reporting on things with potentially big consequences. Mm. My driver's license has a post office box on it. Okay. As far as I know, I'm one of only three people in South Australia that has that. That's very much by design. You, you tend to think about things like that. There's aspects of my life and my family I don't speak about. Yeah. Uh, I'm very public with a lot of things because I have no fear of sharing those things. But there are some things that I just won't and never will share. Yeah. So 
you, you tend to think about those sorts of matters. Mm. Security is obviously a big part of it. Who you trust is a big part of it. Yep. What you trust people with is yeah, a big part definitely. of it. I'm fortunate on two levels that the first level being seldom have I had any direct threats against me. Yep. Literally could count it on the fingers of one hand. The reason for that I like to think is because I have dealt such an unbiased hand to both sides. Again, badge doesn't make you a good person. Yep. Patch doesn't make you a bad person. That very few people take issue with me. I've had one of the biggest organized crime figures in this state once tell me, you pat our asses when we deserve it and you kick our asses when we deserve it. Okay. Good. That, that so sh that's what journalism honesty. should be. Yeah. But that's what journalism should be too, yeah. you know? Again, the balance. Mm. I'm not here to judge you. Mm. I'm here to report what happened. It's like you've earned the respect because, yeah. At least the respect not to be screwed around with. Yeah. I'd never want to take advantage of that and mm. I'd never want to take it for granted either. Yeah. It's just a byproduct of what I do. Yeah. And I'm grateful that... I'm seen in that light. Yeah, that's great. So you talk, you mentioned Daniel before and your Just Lawful podcast, mm. um, which is a brilliant podcast. Thank you. And it, it has a voice of people who haven't spoken before, different perspectives. What's your thoughts around and why the Just Lawful podcast? Like what's that doing for, for you and what you want people to know about? So a lot of these stories are stories that I've told in the advertiser, but only to a certain extent. Mm. These are the bits that I can't tell. These are the bits where the bias comes back in, where I can give my opinion because it's all finished, where people who have not been given enough room to speak can have as much room as they need. The first case we did was the case of Jack Hanley, who was killed by a one-punch incident on Hindley Street. The man that threw that punch was acquitted of manslaughter, which meant that Jack's mother never got to give a victim impact statement, never yeah. got to speak. The prevailing wisdom within media law was, oh, there was an acquittal. She can't speak. We could get sued. My attitude was, no, she must speak. I'll control what she says in mm. legal terms. I'll tell her what she can't say mm. and we'll go from there. Why must she speak from your perspective? Because she needs to. Mm. It's bubbling out of her. It's boiling out of her. Julie Kelvin is her name. She's one of my favorite human beings on the planet. And not only does she need to, she deserves to. She's mm. lost someone that meant absolutely everything to her and that silence was killing her, yeah. toxifying her, poisoning her. For sure. So to give her that outlet, to let that out. And when you listen to the interview, the very first thing I say to her is, Julie, there are five words you want to say. You can't say them. Mm. I'm going to tell you right now on air that you can't say them. My first question for you is, how do you feel knowing you can't say that? Mm. So you make it part of the narrative that yeah. there are you know, there's restrictions, restrictions that we can't get around mm. no matter how much I want to. I said earlier, I hate anybody being silenced and censored, but sometimes you can't get around that. Yeah. Okay. Let's make that part of the narrative. Yeah. Let's explain what it's like to have lost your son and not be able to say those five simple words that everybody would want to say. Everyone would feel naturally. Mm. That's part of her journey. That's part of her struggle. So the great thing about the podcast format is we can just let people talk. Mm. We worry about it later. We don't sit down and say, okay, and we're at the 10-minute mark. You've got two minutes. Wrap it up. Go. We just let you talk. And then Daniel and I, mostly Daniel, will sit and do the <laughs> editing afterwards and yeah. try to pull it together yeah. into a format. Yeah, and, and that sense of the story isn't done for them mm. because – and it's what I've listened to in the podcast is it's not actually about the event. It's about the human beings around the event. 
And that's um, what I want it to be about. Mm. That's why I don't like true crime. True crime for me is a genre that has been overwrought with dramatic recreations. Mm. And, you know, we don't have anything to show here. So we're going to show a bloody knife moving through the shadows. Mm. And it's all about angst and immediacy and forensic gore. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm interested in outcomes. Are these outcomes? The outcomes are always lawful. They're always by mm. the book. But that doesn't mean they're just. Yeah. Because the law is mankind's attempt to reach the insurmountable mountain that is justice. Justice is always going to exist regardless of what the laws are, mm. to, to Godwin the entire situation. It was never justice to kill people in Germany, yet that was the law at the time. Mm. So the two concepts do not yeah. marry up. And you wrote a book um, called City of Evil. I did. There was a little bit of controversy over the title of the book. Not my choice either. Yeah. The, the story there is that I wrote the book intending to debunk the myth that Adelaide was the serial killer capital of the world. And then I got told the title was going to be Murder Town, question mark. I said, no, it isn't. Mm. Yes, it is. Why not, from your perspective? Because that was completely and utterly sensationalist tripe and mm -hmm. the wrong title. Yeah. I wanted it to be called Churches and Graveyards. Okay. Because Adelaide is the city of churches. Every church has a graveyard. Every graveyard is full of skeletons. Mm. It's like saying skeletons in the closet. Yeah. We argued back and forth with the publishers, and in the end, I withdrew the manuscript. I said, that's fine. I won't have a book then. Yeah. Two weeks later, they came back and they said, can we compromise on City of Evil? I said, we can compromise on that for two reasons. Number one, you can't argue that evil things don't go on here. Mm. Number two, it's an Avenged Sevenfold song, so at least now I've got a soundtrack. <laughs> and it's that philosophy of you don't want it sensationalised and... Yeah, you're trying to debunk something. Yeah, one of my journalistic times. mentors, Kim Tilbrook, said to me, you never sensationalise a court case because court cases are always sensational. Mm. You know, one of the earliest cases that I covered was a transgender pro wrestling truck driver who was beheaded and dismembered by lesbian prostitutes. Wow. You don't have to sensationalise that. You simply state the facts of that case. And it's the most sensational thing you've ever heard. Mm. Is anything improved by me chucking the word harrowing in there? Mm. No. no. So why say it? It's already harrowing. If I have to write the word harrowing, as a journalist, I've failed because I've told you this is harrowing rather than you walking away going, wow, that was harrowing. Mm. I'm going to look out for it now. <laughs> Let's turn to another note of we talked about what you do in your life to sort of get support in some of the dark stuff that you look at every single day. Yeah. I'm very interested in your collection of vintage comics yep. and everything else that you do in your spare time. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that and yeah, how's that to. all started? So that's been a childhood collection ongoing. Uh, I grew up loving Transformers, Spider-Man, uh, all the 80s properties, and I was a ravenous hoarder. I kept everything. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate that I was the only child in the family, so there was room for my stuff to be kept. Oh, cool. I should have kept my cousin's He-Man stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Especially at the moment. It's yeah. very much in vogue right now. Uh, so I was lucky that it all got kept. And while I would sell bits and pieces of it over the years, the stuff that really meant something to me, yep. I would actually keep. So collecting has always been part of my life. As I got older, it became an escape. But like any escape, like any coping mechanism, it can also go wrong. So, for example, I went through a, a particularly bad period in my life years ago 
And once that period ended, I looked at a certain segment of my collection. And instead of seeing really cool Japanese articulated transforming robots, I saw empty bottles. Okay. Now, I don't drink, mm. but there was my alcoholism right there. Yeah. There was five years worth of solid drinking, mm. toys that I'd bought to make myself feel happy for five minutes. Yeah. So I bundled them all up and I drove them to Goodwill just before Christmas and I gave them all away. So that way all these kids around that area got brand new untouched toys for Christmas. Mm. And that was the best thing I could do with them. I didn't want money for them. I just needed to do something positive. I recycled the empties, if yeah. you will. I needed to do something good with them. So it really felt like an addiction? Obsession? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I quite honestly went on a 12-step program, self-designed to stop myself. I remember that my wife's Canadian. And mm. at one point we were separated by immigration law. She was back in Canada in 2007 when the Transformers movie came out. And I remember standing in the toy department of Harris Scarf at 8.30 in the morning before starting work, ringing her on a very expensive transnational call saying, mm. I need you to talk to me as I walk out of here without buying anything because otherwise I'm going to buy one of everything. Yep. And that was really the starting point of making sure that the collection was a healthy thing, yeah, not an unhealthy thing, because there's no point coping with what I'm hearing every day by, I mean, like I said, I don't drink. I'm, I consider myself straight edge. Mm. No drugs, no smoking, no drink. But I wasn't straight edge when it came to buying toys. Yeah. So how am I going to pull that back? So mm. put myself on a 12-step, detoxed myself. Mm. And the detox was stick to buying the stuff that you had as a kid or wanted as a kid. Yeah. Set that end goal. So I'm at the process now where I have only two Spider-Man comics left to have a complete run all the way back to 1962. I have every Transformers toy I ever wanted, so I don't need to buy any more of those. Mm. I have a, a beautiful room in our house that is my collection room. It's got, as of the other day, 3,600 comic books in it. Yep. And a Transformers section, a Spider-Man section, a Green Lantern section, all behind glass. Yep. And it's wonderful fun. It's, I can go sit in that room, and the, the rule for that room is there's no TV in there. There's no sound system. If I go down there, I go down there with a book or with a comic. And it's about reading and it's about thinking, it's about contemplating and it's about soaking in the positivity of all these childhood icons and the memories that are attached to them. Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily see Prowl, the police car from Transformers Generation 1. I remember my grandfather bought that for me when I was sick. Yeah. And when he bought that for me, he also bought me two issues of Spider-Man that are sitting in that box over there. Yeah, so it's the meaning and purpose that's exactly, attached to it. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's my 30th birthday present from my wife. Mm. That's the toy Daniel bought me in the middle of the pandemic because mm. he was determined I wasn't going to go my uh, 41st birthday without a toy. Mm. That sort of thing. Yeah. Know, these are the memories that are yeah. attached. And the Pontip, my friend Pontip says, they're not just toys, they're totems. Yeah. They connect us to something. Yeah. And that's very much what I always thought without having the words for mm. it. Yeah, and so you um, you identified that it may have been replacing something when things were tough. Oh, very um, much But so. now you've got boundaries around it and things like that. Yeah. Now, you don't just collect. You actually play and use them. I do. You? Yeah. I do. How important is that? For me, it's everything. I don't want to buy a comic book and not be able to read it. There's a, there's a thing within the comic community where you get a comic book slabbed. You send it away to the United States and they seal it in plastic and give it a grading out of 10 and catalog it in their archives so that they know there's, you know, X thousand copies of Amazing Spider-Man 3 that are mm. in the 7.0 condition. Anytime I buy one of those, I get a crowbar and break it out. 
Do you? Always. <laughs> Sometimes I smash the, the slabs with hammers if I need to to Does get them out. Does that feel good? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Comics are meant to be read. We, yeah. we had a friend come visit the other night and she's in her mid-twenties. She loves Dr. Octopus. Mm. So I took out the very first appearance of Dr. Octopus from 1962 and put it in her hands. Mm. Watching the joy on her face getting to flick through this really old comic book, mm. this moment in history was great like that that was far more enjoyable to me than saying oh this is catalogued somewhere in the grand library of geekery and i'm mm. it's a 7.3 <laughs> yeah or that it's worth something or that it's well it's worth something to me mm. that's what counts and that memory of megan sitting down flicking through that comic is going to be worth yeah. far more to me than the supposed shop value of that comic book one day yeah definitely and with the toys there's play on two levels with stuff that I dreamed of having as a kid, I'll sit there sometimes and just look at it and imagine what games I would have played, what stories I would have made up with them, or I will actually invent a story and mm. go, oh, I would do this and that, then this character would do this and da-da-da, cool, and it's the mental play there. Or I'll take them out into the environment and I'll actually set them up for photography. Yeah. I'm not particularly good at that, but I'm trying. Mm. And that, that's fun. I went to a Japanese garden recently, drove all the way to the Meiji Gardens in Adelaide with a, a ninja toy <laughs> and got down on my knees and posing it, taking photos with my cell phone and people walking around and going, hey, how you doing? Yeah. Yeah. yeah photographing a toy. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. Sorry I tripped you over there. And uh, I'm six foot five. It's a bit long to fill the Meiji Gardens. <laughs> and that's good fun too because it's yeah. just engaging the creativity and thinking to myself, how would I have played with this as a kid? Yeah. And how can I make it look cool? Yeah, so it's almost telling, like telling a story it's all in, storytelling. A, in a different way. So you not only tell stories of what happens in courts, but in your play, there's stories playing out as well. It's always been about the stories for me, not about the item. Yeah. Um, like I say, there's the, the totemic connection, as Pontip calls it, in terms of the connection to memory in connection to mm. event. But I'm not into Transformers because there's a cool red truck that turns into a robot. I'm into the character the stories that they've been involved in, the emotions that they inspire in me, the inspiration mm. that they provided to me growing up. I mean, Optimus Prime was one of my childhood heroes. I even know Optimus Prime. There you go. <laughs> Years later, I got to meet the man that voiced him and got to express that to him, and we became friends and we're yeah. still in contact. How did you go with that? Uh, you like... It was amazing. It was yeah. an amazing experience. He, he was everything I hoped he would be, and he was very impressed with me, so it was like impressing your father. It's like you finally get to meet your dad, your mm. real dad, and your real dad's a giant truck. <laughs> and uh, you impress him, and then he asks for your email address and a copy of your book, and then yep. you become friends. Yeah. And then he adopts your kid and adopts your wife, and yep. you hang out for five days, and it's glorious. Yeah, it's good. So we've covered stories in many different forms. If you could take all of your experiences, whether it's comics, toys, the podcast, writing um, books, that got turned into a, a series as well, it didn't did. it? Yeah. Got turned um, into a TV show. Yeah. And then what you do every day mm. in the courts. What do you think are the pieces of advice or what would you want to tell the world about all of those things put together? Fascinating question. I think it would be that I really enjoy being the conduit for stories. Yeah. I don't necessarily care whether it's remembered that I'm the one that told them. As long as the story gets out, mm. that's what counts to me. And how do you want people to absorb the story? Like what's the point of the story? Frank Turbot was my English teacher in high school, and he was absolutely pivotal in making me into the writer I am today. Mm. 
for the first semester of school, this is in year 11, and I was, I fancied myself the greatest writer that had ever walked through the doors of that school at that point. Mm. Every story I wrote, every assignment, every analysis, whatever, for the first term, I got 16 out of 20 and I was gutted. The final piece I wrote for him at the end of year, the first semester of year 11, I got a 17. Oh. And everything was a 17 right through to the end of term two, which mm. was an 18. Course, then everything was an 18 till the end of term three, which is a 19. Then everything was a 19 all the way through. And then the final thing I wrote for him was a 20 out of 20. And he said, now you know how to write. That was mm. the comment. I then went through year 12 English and got a perfect score. Frank had trained me to write to a university level in year 11. And he'd done so by engaging my competitive spirit, but also by teaching me the number one lesson of the writer, make them laugh, make them cry, or make them think. Mm. And that's always my goal in everything. Laugh, cry, cry think. or think. One of those three or multiples. Yeah. That's what I always aim for. Yeah. I want to wow. make you laugh about a story. I want to make you cry about a story. I want to make you think. And what I've realized as I've gotten older, especially as I've folded journalism into that, is that I'm looking for an empathetic response. Mm. I want empathy. The thing that I want you to take away from the story is to be Atticus Finch and walk a mile in another man's shoes. I want you to see the world from somebody else's perspective and ask yourself how that makes you feel, mm. whether that perspective be a fictional giant robot from another planet or a very real woman who's lost her son to a one-punch hit. Yeah. That's what I want to get out of you because I believe firmly that this world has too much E and not enough E, mm. too much entitlement, not enough empathy. Yeah. So I want my stories to engender empathy, which is why I don't care if you don't remember that I'm the one that told you. I want you to take away the feeling. And take the essence of, of what's being said. And yeah. do something more with it. Yeah. Is that the important part? I the, think the so. The action? I think so. Yeah. I think that's, that's what drives me. The, the purpose that I have is to amplify voices so that empathy is engendered. Yeah. And I'm just thinking out loud now, that whole sense of our world is so busy and saturated and loud and you know with the internet and mm. everything like we're so bombarded in so many ways that I know that I love those moments where you actually have a story and a connection to it and it moves you in multiple ways yeah 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 and, and it's so good that's with, what you're trying to achieve very much so and with courts it's that whole part of the more I can take myself out of it my agenda my ego my bias it means that someone else is getting that conduit straight through that they might not otherwise get so that they are getting the empathy in return back mm. down the conduit. Yeah, and seeing the human. Yeah. And the story, I, I really love that, the badge and the patch. Yeah, I'm going to take that away. <laughs> it's good. So it do served you me well. Yeah, it's good. And because I think it, it's so true, isn't it? You don't, you don't just see someone with the uniform they wear. It's actually the person in it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and how you behave and who you are as a person and... And what plays out. And around the 2010s, when the former state government was trying desperately to get the anti-association laws in, I was one of the most vocal opponents because the whole idea that you could be tarred with a brush just because you were a bikie meant, you know, the idea that you're, you're a bikie, therefore your sentence is harsher than everybody else's just mm. because you're a bikie. I spoke out about that in my articles and also made sure that the voices that were speaking out of it got heard. Mm. And that caused me a lot of grief. Okay. With SA police, or a case of, but but you're one of us genetically, you know you're part of us. You're you're born blue. I'm like, yeah, and that's why I disagree with you. Yeah, because if you change the rules, how are you protecting everybody? Yeah, 
but it's also still finding voice for those who don't have a voice. That's right. Yeah. And in this case, we're very much being silenced just by their association. Now, yeah. I don't particularly agree with bikies doing what they do. In fact, I disagree with it wholeheartedly. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be judged on the individual merits or otherwise of their conduct. Mm. Yeah. Good things to ponder there. Yeah. <laughs> so as a final remark, what's your advice for the world? What's the message for the world that you would like them to have? Is it about story or...? It's about empathy. Mm. It really is about empathy. I feel that the world has confused sympathy and empathy. I think that we fear that if we show empathy, we're going to be seen as sympathetic and weak and that we're going to get sued. We're a litigious society. Everybody's the final act of Hamilton, 10 paces fire. We need to re-engage our empathy and understand that Everybody is walking their own road and everybody's running their own race. We're getting better being empathetic about the big things, as we should be. Domestic violence, transgender rights, mm. mental health. All of those things are starting to get the empathy. Black Lives Matter, such an important movement, changing the dialogue about that. Mm. Uh, Donald Trump did the world a favour by being the worst human being that could possibly be in power and making all of us look at everybody else for a while. Mm. Uh, you know, the great panini that we're living through at the moment, you know, because I won't say that word in case it gets us a strike on YouTube, uh, is also making people, some people, have a bit more empathy as well. Mm. We need to direct those sorts of thoughts to the everyday as well. Yeah. So that's my message is just yeah. understand that empathy doesn't make you weak and self-empathy certainly doesn't make you weak either. So be prepared to reach out for help when you need it too. Yeah. That's a wonderful place to end. That that self-empathy as well as for others because we are all human and life is complex and there's lots of things happening. So thank you for sharing your thoughts. I love that you have this juxtaposition of, of play and seriousness, but really when it comes down to it all, it's all about the story and seeing the person and, and finding their voice. So thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. For show notes and more information about my guests, and to get in touch with me, visit igniteartherapies.com.au.